Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to adopt you into God's family. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to adopt you into God's family. And that is astounding news, isn't it? I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone this week, and he told me some very, very sad news about some old friends of mine. I call them old friends because I've known them for a very long time, and they're older, old friends. One night earlier this week, this couple who are, get this, in their mid-80s, they've been married for 60-plus years, this astounding love story, 60-plus year marriage, this gorgeous family and so, and they'd gone out for a dinner date. And they've been married for 60 plus years and they're still going out on dinner dates. That's amazing, right? Like we could all learn from that. They'd gone out for their dinner date. They returned home. Uh, the husband graciously and gently let his wife out of the car and she went inside while he parked the car as he always does in the garage. He parks the car. He gets out of the car in the garage and from inside the house, he hears this thud. He thought that was an odd, peculiar sound, and so he went into the house. He ascends the flight of stairs on his way up. He finds his wife of 60-plus years laying on the stairs. She had fallen down the stairs. She was barely conscious. My friend, of course, quickly called an ambulance. They rushed his wife to the hospital. The last I heard, middle or so of this last week, it wasn't good. Prognosis was very bad. Doctors were saying, using this line, if she survives. If she survives, she won't ever be the same, skull fracture, brain swelling, all of that stuff. But they were saying, look, even that deal, that's an extreme long shot. We don't even think she's going to live. Now, if you were with us last week for the opening message of this Risen series, that story about my friends might hearken you back to that truth we talked about last week. Remember? Creation groans. As a result of the death and the decay that enslaves all of creation, creation groans. And we went to this text in Romans 8, verse 22. Romans 8, verse 22 says this. For we know that all creation, everything created, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And folks, that includes us because we were created. We're part of the creation. We're subjected then to the very same death, the very same decay that came to be as a result of sin entering all of this. We groan. We groan. Because all of creation, us included, are held captive by death and decay. And this week when I heard the story about my friends, her fall, her prognosis, I got like, shake my fist at God angry. I just did. And I don't know if that happens with you, but it happened with me. It was just about more than I could possibly bear up under. Like, come on. She's in her mid-80s. She's walking up a set of stairs. How many times in her life had she walked up a set of stairs and been just fine? And then this time, like all of a sudden. And it's symptomatic of the bondage to the death and the decay that's caused by sin. And so we groan. It seems to me that we get especially upset when that groaning, the agony that causes the groaning, when it impacts us directly, don't we? At our house, some 12 plus times a day, we have to check our daughter Bailey's blood glucose level. She's a type 1 diabetic. And every time I do that, I get upset. 
I hear the groaning. Every time we administer her insulin through her pump, every time we have to change her infusion site, which is where the insulin goes into her body from this little vial inside the pump because her pancreas is broken, it doesn't work, I get upset. And you have your stuff too, don't you? Every single day I get stories from across the Journey family, people suffering from chronic pain or from cancer, experiencing some relationship that's unraveling, you're the victim of some tragedy, you're experiencing some great life-altering disappointment, and I get upset. And I get upset because all of that pain and all of that heartache and all of that suffering and all that disease and even all that death, they're the markers of the groaning getting really, really personal. Like right here, you know, we read a text about creation groaning is in the pains of childbirth. But our awareness of the creation's groaning, it sort of comes and goes, doesn't it? But 24 hours a day, seven days a week, our bodies are wearing out. We feel it, don't we? Our friends' bodies are wearing out. We watch it. Our families closest loved ones, their bodies are wearing out and we feel all of that. We experience it firsthand and Paul writes about it in the very next verse in Romans chapter 8. And we believers, watch this, also groan. You're not off the hook, Christian. We believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. And isn't that the truth? We too Wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies, new bodies that he's promised us. And so you see, we who trust Jesus, we groan because we have yet to attain the fullness of the purpose that God intends for us. Because of sin, see, we're not all that God made us to be, and so we groan, we agonize, we suffer. And Paul seems to indicate in that text that the groaning that Christ followers, that we as Christians experience, can often be a surprise to us, can't it? Why would the groaning be a surprise to we who follow Jesus, have trusted him with our lives? Paul tells us in this text, we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us. He gives us the answer. Paul's saying, look, even you who trust Christ, even you who have the Holy Spirit, you still groan because you're still not all that God intends for you to be. Another way to slice it would be to say this, as a result of the sin that we're held captive to, we groan because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Get that. Because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Think about it like this. The day that any person steps across the line of faith in Jesus Christ, on the day that you gave your heart and life to him, the day that you asked him to be your savior and your Lord and your boss and your life manager, all those things, the Holy Spirit of God permanently indwelled your heart and your life right then. From that moment on, the presence of God resides in you via his Holy Spirit. And so you see, when the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in us, all kinds of things start kicking loose, don't they? Things aren't the same as they used to be. One of the most important being that the Holy Spirit demands that our lives be conformed to the life and image of Christ. The Holy Spirit inside of you who call yourselves a follower of Jesus Christ demands that your life be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Demands. 
The Holy Spirit demands that we're not like we used to be before we met Christ. You're being made holy. And the Holy Spirit of God is constantly inviting and calling and challenging and demanding that we as followers of Jesus walk in the newness of life that Jesus died and was raised from the dead to give us. And so you see, as the result of the Holy Spirit's activity in our hearts and lives, we suddenly have this sense of everything that God made us to be. And we also realize in that moment that we're not all that God intended us to be. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us actually increases our frustration with our inability to completely measure up to God's holy standard. Doggone it, I blew it. As we know, God's perfect and God's holy and God's righteous. And he's the standard. And we really want to measure up in Christ because of everything Christ did, but we can't. And so the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives then heightens the groaning, heightens the yearning to be everything God has in heart and mind for us to be. And so then we who follow Jesus Christ are left waiting. Waiting. And we don't like waiting, but what are we waiting for? We believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit, Within us is a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. That's obvious, right? But then here we go. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. We're awaiting our full rights as his adopted children. Jesus died on the cross, and he took our sin, and he took my punishment and your punishment, and he was buried in the ground, and he rose from the dead in order to adopt us fully and completely into God's family, and we live in this already but not yet tension in that waiting space, this already but not yet. See, by virtue of our personal relationship with God, through his son Jesus Christ, we're already adopted into God's family. We are. It's true. So then why does Paul say in Romans 8.23 that we're then waiting for our adoption? God's purpose for our adoption, see, is not to leave any of his children in a state of groaning and suffering. The suffering from chronic pain, from cancer, the experience of relationships unraveling, tragedies sting, the disappointment we experience in this life, they're not meant to be permanent in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead with a new body. He promises that part of the completion of our adoption into his family is us too having a brand new resurrection body, no more disease, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more groaning. And so in this waiting space, this waiting time, we're awaiting, watch this, the finalization of our adoption, which will be the resurrection of our bodies. And in the meantime, we groan on the path of adoption in route to the fullness of our salvation. 
we feel the agony. But that isn't, Christian, your permanent plight. God promises that the outcome will be spectacular. His word is glorious. He assures us it will be worth the wait. It'll be worth the wait. Look how Paul puts it a little earlier in that same chapter. Romans 8.18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he, that's God, will reveal to us later. Yet what we suffer now, and it can be pretty miserable, isn't it? But it's nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. Paul's saying whatever suffering or pain or frustration or disappointment that you as a child of God are enduring right now, it's nothing when you compare it with the glory that you're going to experience in the future. And a very fair question to ask in the face of that kind of a text is Paul just trying to make us feel better? Is Paul just trying to make us feel better about everything we're suffering up under right now, everything we're bearing up under and enduring now? Is Paul sort of patronizing us in order to bring us some sort of temporary comfort from the pain of this life? Now, if we didn't know the sufferings of Paul himself personally, we might be able to buy into that. But we know Paul's sufferings. We know what Paul suffered through. I have a resume, actually, of Paul's suffering from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's resume of suffering. Here it is. I have worked harder, been put into prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Got that going on? Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes with a whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Cultural context. Medium-sized rocks hurled at him, not illicit drug use. Just making sure we're all on the same page. Three times I was shipwrecked. Ever had that happen? Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea, and I'll bet they didn't have one of those fancy pull the life raft handle and, psh, and it's like survival on the raft. No. A night and a day adrift at sea. That means he's probably swimming, maybe clinging to a little plank from whatever ship was wrecked. I've traveled many long journeys. I've faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. Nobody likes him. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. Those are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul suffered up under all of that for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can imagine the toll that that took on his body. He used a line earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, and he says, though our bodies are dying, and you read that resume of Paul's suffering, and you sort of get the feel that that's what he's talking about when he says, though our bodies are dying, and the Greek word for the word dying there is the word you use to describe rust chewing through metal. Pretty graphic picture. Or of moths eating through cloth. Pretty graphic picture. Or of starvation emaciating the body. Pretty 
graphic pictures. Though our bodies are dying, they're wasting away. And Paul says, look, the hope and the fullness of our adoption and salvation makes even all of this terrible suffering, it makes it tolerable. It makes it tolerable because of what's coming. Just hang on. Just hang on. Now see, because of what Jesus did on the cross and by his rising, we're already God's children. Yes. We're in Christ, justified and reconciled, grafted into God's family, but we're not yet fully, Paul says it, we're not fully God's children in the way we'll one day be God's children. The day when we share in the full inheritance, the day we experience perfect holiness, brand new, resurrected bodies, glorified the way God intends for us to be glorified. And in this land between that we find ourselves in, sometimes some of us read more into our suffering, we read more into our groaning than God would have us read into it. Some of us assume that in our moments or days or hours of suffering, because we're groaning We assume that our punishment is the result of some particular sin. I messed up, I screwed up, and God's letting me have it right here, right now. No. I was talking to another friend the other day who told me about their son who was dating this really cool girl in another state. And then one day, sort of out of nowhere, that girl's mom forced the couple to break up, forced him to stay away from her. Why? They had gotten in an auto accident. Pretty significant auto accident. And the girlfriend's mom interpreted that auto accident as suffering that came about as a result of sin in his life. Are you kidding me? See, we're all part of the suffering and the groaning. Christ followers are not exempted. We have a down payment on our inheritance and we still suffer. We have a sovereign God who is working all things together for our good and still we suffer. We are the bride of Christ and still we suffer. Everyone groans under the curse of sin. Which means you cannot, any time, any way, turn the suffering or the groaning into some kind of spiritual barometer. Never. You cannot, like that woman did, assume the suffering and the hardship and the groaning is punishment for sin. All creation suffers and groans. It's the curse of the entire world. And Paul's point is even the precious children of God who are partially adopted into God's family, even they suffer. And Jesus was raised from the dead to adopt you into God's family. No more spiritual orphans. God's inviting you home into his forever family today. And I want to land our time together by putting a really practical bow around all that it means to be adopted into God's family. Show of hands, no fibbing. How many of you at some point in your life have thought that heaven is going to be boring? Show of hands. Let's be honest. Yeah. There's a few honest ones out there. I got the stats on this, folks, and there's a lot of liars in the room right now. It's a really common thing, isn't it? Are we believe that heaven's going to be this really boring place? We're going to leave this really cool place 
especially Bozeman, right? We, like, this is as good as it gets right here. Really, seriously, I have to leave all this and go off to this drab, boring world. I'm going to float around on clouds and play harps. That's what lots of people think heaven is. We're just floating around, no bodies, this ghostly mansion in the sky, all harpish. Lots and lots of people think that's heaven. But it's not close. Like, not even close, because you see, those who are in Christ, your adoption into God's family is finalized when Jesus comes back, when he raises your body from the dead, and get this, he makes your body new, and he makes it perfect, and he makes it healthy, and he makes it strong. And I need that. We all need that. See, God's not about just snatching us away from this earth to spend eternity in heaven all bored. We talked about it last week. He's renewing heaven, he's renewing earth, and he's establishing them as the place where we live, get this, in incomparable joy forever and ever and ever when Jesus comes. And there's going to be nothing boring about that. Being adopted into God's family means that everything you love about life on this earth will be there, new heaven, new earth, it's there. The bad stuff, it's long gone, and we can't wait for that, right? You get that out of here now. But everything you love about this life stays in the new earth for all of eternity. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and because on that day when he returns, you will be completely adopted into God's family, your body is going to be perfect in every way you can imagine it being perfect. The activities of the new heaven, new earth, think about this line, it's all there. It's all there. All the things you do in this life that bring you the greatest joy, that bring the greatest smile to your face, it's all there because Jesus was raised from the dead to adopt you into God's family. Stop thinking, please, that eternity is going to be drab and boring. It's all there. The best stuff is there. And it will all be finalized. It will all be completed when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, we hope. We anxiously await something that we're quite unable to see right now. Don't we wish we could? And God's saving this glory up in heaven for us and we can't see it, we can't hear it, we can't taste it. And so we wait and we hope. We wait and we hope. Three and a half years ago, lots of you know, we adopted three older kids from Ethiopia, Silas, Joshua, and Malia. And you start the adoption process, and it's really quite a straightforward process. The first thing you do is you acknowledge God's invitation upon your family's life to adopt, right? That's the first sort of reckoning with God thing that we do. And after that, you start with this thing called a home study. And it's where this very nice social worker comes to your house and checks you out. And I mean checks you out. All the ways that you'd want a family to be checked out before they adopt, like references to people in your world, visits to the house, conversations with every member of the family, criminal background checks, financial evaluations. It all really starts with a social worker. Once you sort of cleared the home study piece, that's what they call that, a home study process, then you apply to an adoption agency. 
Once you've been accepted with an adoption agency, you then set about to building your dossier. It's this big, thick stack of paper all about your life and your family, your finances, your spiritual background, all that stuff. It gets sent off to the place from which you're going to adopt from. If you're adopting from the United States, it would go to like some county seat somewhere. If you're adopting from a foreign country, it would go there. Once it's there, it gets translated. It's in the United States. It doesn't need to be translated unless you wrote it in some weird language, which would be bizarre. I don't know why you'd do that. And then from there, you wait and you pray and you raise money and you wait and you pray and you raise money. It's kind of how it works. Eventually, there's a court date, they call it, where a judge, whether in the United States, if you're adopting domestically, or in Ethiopia, if you're adopting internationally or some other country, that judge makes a legal ruling. And on that day, Silas, Josh, and Malia officially became our children. And it's quite without fanfare. You're not there. You get this sort of sterile email with a bunch of documents attached to it, and you're like, they're yours now. Can't be a real good parent from here over there, but they're yours now. Okay. About a month after that, we traveled to Ethiopia, and we finalized that adoption. We picked them up, and we brought them home. Now, in the couple of years between when we adopted Josh, Silas, and Malia and adopting Kenzie, Ethiopia, they changed the game a bit. It was a little bit different process at that time at all. Yes, starts with a home study. Then you build a dossier, which, in case you're wondering, ours sort of just assembles itself these days. And then prayer and fundraising and waiting. But now, this time, the Ethiopian government insists that the adoptive parents, watch this, go to Ethiopia for that court date. They want the adoptive parents there present in the courtroom when that legal pronouncement of adoption is made. And that extra trip, that court trip, as they call it, we think on one hand it's a good thing, on the other hand it's a not so good thing. It's good, why? You get to see your kid. It's a fantastic deal. And lots and lots of families who are adopting internationally especially, they've only seen pictures of their kid, they've never met their kid, and so they can't wait to meet their kid. We'd met Kinsey because she was hosted here in a summer hosting program, the Summer of Hope deal, and so we, we knew her, but we were still excited to get to see her again. Everybody loves being with their kid. You spend a week really just hanging out, connecting, talking, them getting to know you, you getting to know them, and it's really a cool deal, the courtship, for all those reasons. It's also good, we think, for the extra check in the system. There's this new layer of integrity that gets added to the system. We think that's good. Oh, what's not so good, though, I'd even call it bad, is you hang out with your kid, you connect, you bond, you establish roots together, and then what do you got to do? You got to leave. You got to leave. And you got to leave without your kid. You have to leave your kid. Now, the judge has pronounced, we, we went into this drab, dirty office in Addis Ababa in the city government office, and you think you're going into a courtroom, and you go into this little tiny closet office, and it's, you know, no fanfare there either. She's ours, but, but we have to leave her. You leave without your kid. Because see, the Ethiopian government, they got work to do. They got to process passport applications. and Our embassy over there has to process her visa application. There's paperwork and waiting. And if you have a job and other kids and a life, you can't just sit around waiting for the Ethiopian government to do all their paperwork. You'd wait a long time. Sometimes it's four to six weeks before it's all ready 
to go. And so you know, you understand where that leaves your kid. Right? This sweet child who you can't wait to bring home, who you can't wait to make a permanent part of your family, who can't wait to be a part of your family, it leaves them, again, waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping. Waiting and hoping. And it's the very same already but not yet place that we as God's sons and daughters find ourselves in as we wait for Jesus to come back and get us and finalize our adoption into his family. It's already but it's not yet. And last July of 2012 as we wrapped up our court trip, as we prepared to leave Kinsey, the only word I know to describe that time of leaving, of separation, was a bloodbath. Right? It, it was a bloodbath. Tears and tears and tears. And we're promising we're coming back. We're promising it isn't going to be too long. We're promising that it's going to go really, really fast. But still, it's brutally difficult. Brutally difficult. And it was, in our case, about seven or so weeks later, we went back and we picked Kinsey up and we took Josh, Silas and Malia back with us. They hadn't been back in the three and a half years since they'd come home and we finished, we finalized the adoption process that we started with Kinsey. We picked her up and we brought her home and we were hers and she was ours and it was final. And what a day and what a moment and what a, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's burned right here. And see, there was never, ever any question about whether or not we would go back to get Kinsey. Wasn't any question at all. Of course we were going to go get her. She's our daughter. Of course we're going to finalize the adoption that we'd started over a year prior. Of course we were going to keep our word. She's our kid. We'd do anything for our kid. Of course we were going to go get her. And in the same way, understand this. Of course, Jesus Christ, and how much more so is Jesus Christ, the one and only Son of God, going to come back and finalize our adoption as God's sons and daughters into his family? How much more so is Jesus going to do that? And the waiting is hard, brutal, difficult, agonizing, filled with groaning. But in the end, it will all be worth it. It will be worth the wait. Just hang on. Just hang on. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, please. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer if you would. heads bowed and with your eyes closed right now God is inviting spiritual orphans to come home Jesus Christ rose from the dead to adopt you into the forever family of God 
right now, Jesus' invitation to his resurrection life stands wide open. Right now, God's invitation to be saved from our sin stands wide open. Right now, the invitation to step into the very mission of God, which you were made for by God, stands wide open. He's inviting you into God's forever family. you can take that really bold step of trusting him with your whole heart and your whole life by praying along with me Jesus I get it I understand my spiritual orphan status I understand the sin that's hardwired within me I understand that I am completely and utterly incapable of saving myself Jesus, I need you. The spotless, sinless Lamb of God, I require you to be my Savior. I want you, Jesus, to be my Savior. And with all the faith I can muster right here, right now, I gratefully received, Jesus, your gift of salvation. I'm trusting you as Lord and Savior of my whole life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for showing me what it is to live life your way. And thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me, for taking my sin and my shame and my punishment and my guilt, all of that. And thank you, Jesus, for being buried in the ground in a tomb. And thank you especially, Jesus, for rising on that first Resurrection Sunday. Thank you, Jesus. I'm trusting you once and for all with my everything. Here I am. you're a person who's stepping into the forever family of God today, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. Nothing matters more. And it's such a big deal that around here we like to acknowledge that decision. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. This is a personal, private moment. You, me, and God are the only ones looking around this room. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus, to come home to Him, once and for all, would you be really bold and would you just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now and just let me acknowledge that decision with you right now. Can you do that right? Yeah, both of you over here, yes. And you too, yes, absolutely. And you, yes, way to go. Yes, absolutely, I see it to my left, absolutely. Yes, sir. And you too, yes being made new right now and you in the back yes way to go absolutely way to go yes and oh God we thank you so much for these who are stepping into life in you today God, that your Holy Spirit would sweep in and sweep across their lives in such a way that it is tangible and palpable that it's you, God, that the newness of life that follows their choice, their decision to follow you, 
that it would be remarkable, God, that they would not ever be the same, that the old would be gone, that the new would come, Jesus, in all of them. And that Jesus, as we await our finalization of our adoption into the family of God, that you would give us hope, that you would sustain sustain us in these days that are not easy, that are marked by all kinds of stuff. And Jesus, please don't ever let us just rest on our laurels as we hope and wait. Send us out. We're your messengers. We're the bringers of your kingdom with our lives and with our words. We display and declare your good news. The good news, Jesus, that you rose from the dead to adopt every person on planet Earth into the family of God. Make us bringers of that news, please, Jesus.